All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your werewolf autobiography, speculative fiction, book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. I am back with another bonus episode, another one commissioned by one of our very generous Patreon supporters. And this time, the book is The Devourers by Indra Das. This was originally published in 2015. And I had heard of this book probably back in 2015, probably when it was first published, but never read it until now. And I was blown away by this book. So I am extremely grateful for the commission and and the opportunity, the, the impetus to read this book. And if there's a book that you would like to hear me talk about, you can commission an episode of your own by contacting us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com, or you can message us at any of our social media accounts as well. But all right, let's, uh, let's get straight into it. Let's go talk about The Devourers. First things first, this is a werewolf book. I don't care about werewolves. Uh, in fact, I think they're kind of dumb. I mean, Seth Green is awesome, right? Oz, even more awesome than that. But werewolves, generally kind of dumb, I think. And hey, so does Indra Das. At the end of this book, the narrator actually makes a joke about how bad werewolf books and movies usually are. But uh, this one, it's not bad. It's awesome. So, all right, The Devourers is a werewolf book. More specific than that, it is about a dude in our own time who meets a werewolf and learns about this werewolf's parents. At the beginning of the book, this present-day material actually really just serves as a frame for the material in the past, which is given to us in the form of letters written by the werewolf's parents, one by his father and another by his mother. And these are both from the 17th century, so they're quite removed from the present of 2015. And, and these documents make up the, the bulk of the story. It's really about two-thirds of the, the page count. But when we come out of them and return to the frame, it turns out that there's a lot more going on with the frame than, than just letting us hang the main attraction on the wall. So, some particulars. Uh, let's meet the characters in the frame first. Uh, it's 2015. Well, I don't know. I've said that twice now. But really, it's probably more like the year 2000, as there don't seem to be any cell phones or internet. I don't know. It might even be the 90s then in that case. But... At any rate, it is our own lifetimes. It's a world that is familiar to us. We're in Calcutta, and our narrator is a young and lonely history professor named Alec. He's out alone one night, listening to some music in a city park, being lonely, when he is approached by another man. A man whose name we will not learn until the last pages of the book, and is just generally then called The Stranger, so that's what I'm going to do. The Stranger tells Alec that he's half werewolf, and then proceeds to tell him about that. But it's not just a matter of telling. The stranger is able somehow to share the experiences in the story with Alec. And Alec is super into this. So they meet at a bar the next night to continue the story. Though the stranger does not really hold up that end of the bargain. Instead, he has brought some handwritten documents that he wants Alec to type up and print out for him. And that leads us into the narrative of the 17th century. So that is where we're going to go now. By outward appearances, the stranger's father is a Scandinavian man traveling with two other European men. Now, of course, they're, they're all werewolves. We're going to find that out very quickly. The stranger's mother is a Pashto-speaking woman who is a prostitute and also just a regular human, not a werewolf. The father goes by Fenrir. That's not his real name. It's the name of a character in the Eddas of medieval Norse literature, where he's a giant wolf who's going to play an important role in Ragnarok, which is the destruction and then also the rebirth of the world. 
Obviously, it's a bit of a joke on his part to use that as his name. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that name and the names of his companions in the next segment so that we can focus on the plot here. Fenrir falls in love with Kira. That's the the stranger's mother. Uh, Fenrir falls in love with her, but not in a way that I think any of us would really recognize as love. But this is a big deal for a werewolf because, you know, they eat humans, right? They don't love them. And actually, I guess maybe we should take a sidestep here and talk about werewolves, about how they function in, in this book, right? As it's inventing its own rules for what werewolves are. And, and really, even just the term werewolf is a bit misleading. Das uses it as a, kind of a joke, really. About halfway through the book, the narrator actually starts thinking about these people as shapeshifters, which is far more appropriate. The deal is this. Shapeshifter is not a scientific category. It's not merely a biological species with surprising attributes. They don't sexually reproduce with one another to make more werewolves, and and the manner in which they take sustenance is not purely biological. It's not purely physiological. Uh, Shapeshifter is really a supernatural category. It is outside of the realm of nature, above nature. Super, there's the prefix means. And shapeshifters have two shapes. They have a human form, and then they have a spiritual form that is bestial or or monstrous. That shape often has attributes associated with an animal that is indigenous to the appropriate environment, right? So wolves for Europe, tigers for India. But it's definitely not actually that type of animal or, or any type of animal, So these are not humans who can morph into wolves or tigers, or even morph into something with attributes of both a wolf and a human. Shapeshifters eat humans, and in doing so sustains both of their shapes. But part of that sustenance is supernatural. It allows the spiritual form to live forever. And they have to do that hunting and eating in their spiritual shape. Uh, They also, as I said, they don't reproduce biologically. They can make new shapeshifters, but they have to do that through acts of violence done to a human. Uh, Just to say they have to destroy a person uh, to do it. They have to destroy a human in order to make a new shapeshifter. Uh, That's going to be important in the next segment as well. The last thing to say here about how all of this works is that the shapeshifters also do not merely eat humans. They they truly devour them, right? It's the, the name of the book. And so... When they consume them, when they devour them like this, they also take their memories, they take their experiences, and for example, it is a great way to learn a language. But the shapeshifters can also molt, Uh, they can swap the human form that they have now for a different human form. Uh, It has to be the form of someone that they've eaten, someone they've devoured. It's a pretty painful experience, though. It's also difficult. It takes several days. It makes you vulnerable. So it's not really a superpower, but it is a cool power. And that also means that in this speculative world, in the, the world that Das is envisioning here, the origin of vampire lore and werewolf lore is the same here. It is this type of creature. All right, back to our plot. And actually, there's, there's not really that much more to recap here. We're actually really almost done at this point. Fenrir wants to reproduce with Kira. He wants to make a baby with her, or really with someone, and he thinks that he loves Kira because she's strong-willed. And he goes to her and explains all of this to her, all, all, the, all the werewolf business, or he tries to, really, because yeah, it's not easy to tell someone you're a werewolf. Also, it's not easy to take that seriously when a stranger is telling you that. I mean, that hasn't happened to me, but I think I would be pretty incredulous. And so, in the end, and this is where the story is going to get really dark here. In the end, Fenrir 
rapes Kira. Uh, He has sex with her without her consent, but then he's befuddled by why she's angry and hurt and why she wants him to go away. And the first document that we have uh, where where this is being narrated to us, that first document is Fenrir writing to Kira afterwards to try to explain himself. The next document is Kira's response to that letter. Uh, It's not addressed to Fenrir, though. It's actually to their son, uh, who, of course, we know is the stranger in the, the frame narrative. And Kira's account does not hold back. She has no sympathy for Fenrir, no sympathy for what he's done to her. She doesn't ever excuse or forgive him. But she does go searching for him. And her reason for doing that is not entirely clear. Not to us, and and really probably not to her either. Searching for Fenrir leads Kira to his companion, Jevodan. This is another great name. We're going to talk about that. Jevodan also wants to find Fenrir. Uh, Turns out that Fenrir is is run off by himself at this point. Jevodan's motivations are much clearer than Kira's. He has a romantic love for Fenrir, and he wants to be with him. Most of the book then, or at least you know, the biggest chunk of the, the book, might not really be a majority, but it's a plurality of it at any rate. So much of the book is Kira and Jevodan traveling across 17th century India looking for Fenrir. And this is really how we go about learning about shapeshifters. It's through their adventures. And in the end, they find Fenrir. And he and Jevodan, they, they fight to the death. And Fenrir badly defeats Jevodan. But then he leaves him alive. And Kira nurses Jevodan back to health because the two of them have really bonded on their journey. Fenrir runs off again, but Kira and Jevodan stay in the Sundarbans forest, which is home to a tribe of shapeshifters. Kira then gives birth to a child, a boy. We've met him, the stranger. But Kira then gives the boy to the local shapeshifters to be raised by them uh, and then transformed into a shapeshifter when he reaches adulthood. Kira and Jevodan continue to live on the outskirts of the forest so that they can watch the boy grow up. And when he has grown, Kira sends Jevodan back to Europe, and then she introduces herself to her adult son. But with Jevodan gone, Kira's in pretty serious danger here, right? The only reason that she's not been eaten by the local shapeshifters is because of Jevodan. But Kira wants her son to kill her and, and eat her, to devour her. And he does. And then she lives on in him uh, for a while, really as like a, an active personality. And then now in the, the present of the story, still there as memories and experiences that her son can access. But because her son, uh, the stranger, uh, because he ate her without sharing, uh, and maybe just because he's always been regarded as an outsider of, of some kind, uh, the stranger is now exiled from his tribe and he has to go out in the world. So he does. And he finds Fenrir, and he kills and devours him. And so now we can fast forward, right? The, the stranger now largely lives in his human form in Kolkata, uh, though pretty clear, right? <laughs> the, the fact that he is still alive and also still youthful, uh, this indicates that he is still eating humans. We, we don't know how frequently they have to do that to not age and to, to have their immortality, but uh, it's probably not that infrequent. And so the book ends back in this frame narrative, back in our present, or yeah, I don't know, maybe the 90s, but, but now-ish, anyway. So it ends back in the frame narrative. Alec, who, uh, the narrator of the frame, we haven't mentioned him in a little while, but Alec has finished reading and typing up everything that we have now read. And now he travels with a stranger to the Sunderbounds, and they have a love affair while they are there. And then Alec wakes up one morning, and the stranger is gone. Alec returns to his life in Kolkata, and as far as we know, he never sees the stranger again. But he's 
been transformed by this experience, uh, both the experience of reading these letters and journals and also the experience of knowing and loving the stranger. And the book ends with Alex's stream of consciousness as he moves between thinking about himself as himself and as the stranger, as Kira, and as Fenrir. So there is a real sense in which The Devourers is a love story. I mean, you know, like there's not a lot here that I'd recommend as a life model, but love is one of the central themes of the book. So let's move into our next segment and talk about that. What I want to do here is talk about the way in which each of our characters expresses or experiences something that we might call love. And I also want to think about how that defines each of these people. And I'm going to work backwards. I'm going to start with Alec, uh, the narrator of the frame. Alec has a pretty complicated backstory that he reveals to us only gradually throughout the book. He is not in a romantic relationship. He's also estranged from his family. And it turns out that those two things are related. He had been engaged to a woman when he was in grad school. She was a a fellow student, but they broke off that engagement. And this was a huge blow to Alec's family because they had really wanted to be a part of a larger familial unit with his fiance's family. They either don't know why Alec and his fiance broke off the engagement or they are unsympathetic to the reasons. I suspect it's the latter, but we don't really find out. But at any rate, By tacit and passive agreement, Alec has just stopped communicating with his family. The reason that he and his fiancé broke up is that while Alec does not seem to dislike having sex with women, he also enjoys having sex with men. And indeed, his, his first romantic and sexual feelings during puberty were oriented toward a boy who was his friend. We don't get any particulars about the manner in which this led to the breakup with his fiance, and, and, and those don't really matter anyway, I don't think. The, the point is that Alec has a hard time finding romantic and sexual fulfillment. He has a hard time finding love. When we meet him, he is occasionally having coffee with a woman at his university, it's another professor, and he thinks that maybe he should see about dating her, but that almost seems to grow out of a concern that he's leading her on. And when he does actually make that move, she turns him down, and then he's just super embarrassed about the whole thing. But then there's the stranger, whom Alec is immediately attracted to. Uh, That's apparently a thing that all shapeshifters have, though, and that's also fairly standard for both werewolf and vampire lore, that sort of allure that they have on us regular folks. So they develop a friendship while Alec is working on the transcription, and ultimately this becomes a romantic and sexual relationship, at least at the end, at least for this one weekend getaway. But in the end, Alec is left alone again. He's left wondering if the stranger will ever show up again, though also suspecting and accepting, I think, as well, that the answer is no. And so he's in very much the same place as he began, though to be fair, he does have a cat now that the stranger got him. So, you know, there's that. I love cats. But I would be interested, really, in in hearing from you about where you think his story goes next. We never really learn anything about the stranger's feelings in all of this. He's kind of an angry teenager and then kind of a brooding 20-something who is also maybe kind of sexy in part because he's brooding. I mean, he's a real brood hunk, right? That's the way I'm envisioning him anyway. But that's all we get, really. So mostly, love shows up in this story, in this dynamic among our 17th century characters, right? Kira, Fenrir, and Javodan. So let's talk about them. And let's start with Fenrir, since we get his point of view story first. Shapeshifters are not supposed to regard humans as anything other than prey, even though they themselves move around in human form and often do so within human society. 
And when they are in their bestial form, we're meant to understand that they will simply kill humans without restraint. They'll just kill all the humans who are nearby. But Fenrir has been thinking about the rules that they live by and, and wondering what they're for. Like, Why not get more from humans than food? Fenrir also wants to reproduce. He wants to create, which he could only do with a human. And this seems to be something that he's been thinking about for a long time. And then he meets Kira. And he says to Jevodan, and I'm, I'm quoting here, he says, I have lived a long time. I have known love. I have kept it locked away, but I have felt it. I believe others of our kind feel it, have felt it, but hide it as well. Fenrir's drawn to Kira, and he's attracted to her because she is strong-willed. Really, I think the way to think about that is because she doesn't act like prey. And Fenrir labels this feeling that he has for Kira as love, but then he has sex with her against her will, and he doesn't understand what the big deal is. He doesn't understand why she's angry about that. And it's very clear that for Fenrir, his feelings are all that matter. He has not at all considered Kira as a real person, a real person with her own will and her own feelings. And it has not occurred to him that a relationship uh, of any kind, that a relationship is about people functioning together, that it's not about one person imposing his or her will on others. It is not at all about domination. It's about partnership. Before we talk about Jevodan, let me actually say a few things about werewolf sexuality. Their bestial forms are a kind of expression of their will or spirit or, or something like that, and so they're changeable. The stranger, for example, grows up with his bestial form resembling a tiger, but then he changes it to resemble a wolf. Uh, they can also change their colors and you know, stripes or spots or whatever, all of that sort of thing. One of the things they can also change or, or choose, really, are their genitals. Whether they have male or female genitals, or both or none, is totally up to them. And so werewolf sexuality is quite fluid, and members of a pack will have sex with one another and change up the dynamics of those sexual relationships by altering their genital configurations. And Fenrir and Jevodan frequently have sex with each other in their bestial forms, and this is really typical of shapeshifters. This is not a, a unique or unusual thing for them. What is not typical, though, is that Jevodan has developed an emotional attachment to Fenrir that is tied to their sexual relationship. In short, Jevodan loves Fenrir. He loves him romantically and sexually, and he wants to be in a, a partnership with him. And, and in fact, when their pack leader, who, who we've not talked about yet at all, but, but we will, but when their pack leader wants to kill Fenrir because he has had sex with a human and is therefore now an abomination... Jevodan kills that pack leader by stabbing him in the back with a knife, and he does this because he does not want Fenrir to die because he wants to be with Fenrir. But Fenrir rejects him, and, and having also himself now been rejected by Kira, he runs off. This is what motivates him to run away. When Kira shows up looking for Fenrir, Jevodan goes with her. Now later, we learn that his plan was to eventually devour Kira and to take her form so that Fenrir would love him. He was going to masquerade as Kira, basically. But he doesn't do that. And the reason he doesn't do that is that he develops a type of love for Kira. They bond, and what's especially important is that Kira actually bonds with Jevodan, you know, as Jevodan, but also in his bestial form. She is able to look on him, and he is able to control himself. He is able to not go on a rampage and kill her. She even rides him in this form. I guess it's a, I don't know, fast mode of transportation, I guess. And so in short, they, they come to love each other, not romantically, not sexually. It's a, a companionate love. 
It's also protective. Uh, Javadan wants to protect Kira from Fenrir, and then eventually also the, the pack and the Sundermans. And the other side of that is that Kira heals and cares for Jevedan after Fenrir nearly kills him, even though she's now been told about Jevedan's plan to devour her and become her. I want to say, too, just as kind of an aside here, that Fenrir's decision not to kill Jevedan or Kira at that moment, that may actually be the closest that Fenrir came to expressing something that really is love. Okay, one last thing I want to look at on this topic before we we move on to another theme that I want to talk about. And what I want to talk about here is Kira's love for her child, the the stranger. Her reason for chasing after Fenrir is not really clear to me. I, I don't think it's clear to her either. And after the big fight, she, at that point, could choose to just return to human society and raise her child. Uh, Not that that would be an an easy life, right? But it was there for her. It was an option that she had. But instead, she chose to continue to the Sundarbans with Jevodan, and then she gives her baby to the shapeshifters there, where he's going to be raised in his human form until adulthood, and then turned into a shapeshifter. But Kira doesn't just give him up and then return to human society. She stays, and she watches over her son from afar, and... Then she offers herself to him to be his first kill, to to make him truly a shapeshifter. She clearly loves her son, but it is a form of love that I do not understand at all. I have recently become a father, and I can say unequivocally that I would not make any of these choices about my son. Uh, To me, me this feels like abandoning, really even killing this child, but... That is not at all how Kira sees it. And I, I would love to talk more about this on the, the forums or on Reddit, because this I just found this unsympathetic. But okay, I, I want to circle back now to Fenrir's drive to create, which is, I think, really the central theme of his narrative. Maybe not the, the whole book, definitely not the whole book, but of his narrative at any rate. And in that narrative, the, the drive to create is contrasted with, also linked up with, paired with, the drive to destroy that drive to destroy is really what characterizes shapeshifters in this book. And, and that is a metaphor made literally true when we learn that they cannot reproduce, that they, they cannot create new life. They devour, but that really is all that they do. Fenrir wants more than that. He wants to create a new life. He wants to make a baby. And he has, perhaps anyway, a, a drive to become more human, though fails at this pretty spectacularly, and even when he acts on his creative impulse, he's totally destructive. He's violent and destroys Kira, even if he doesn't devour her. The way these contrasting drives are presented in Fenrir's journal is as the Apollonian drive to create and the Dionysian drive to destroy. And these refer to the ancient Greek gods Apollo and Dionysus, but it more specifically refers to a work of literary and cultural criticism by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, his first book is called The Birth of Tragedy. And that book is uh, is kind of crazy. It's hard to really say what it's about. You know, if you've ever read it, it's really difficult to say what it's actually about. I mean, almost a third of it is specifically about how awesome the opera composer Richard Wagner is. Uh, They were super best friends at the time. Not super best friends for long, though. But anyway, it is a a crazy book. It was heavily criticized by classical scholars in its own day. And I feel totally comfortable saying that his analysis of ancient Greek literature and culture is not good. But 
It is a breathtaking essay on literature, on what literature is for, and it can be a fun read. It's certainly a provocative read. At any rate, where Nietzsche intersects with werewolves is in trying to understand that humans can be both creative and destructive. In fact, we need to, we must, we have to acknowledge our destructive impulses and let them out. Doing that, letting out those destructive impulses, that was the birth of tragedy. Uh, And what Nietzsche means here by tragedy is the plays of Sophocles and Aeschylus and Euripides and, and so on. And these were all part of a festival for the god Dionysus who himself was the god of wine and madness and drunkenness and, and, and so on, the god of letting go. And you may also have heard of the idea of a, a social safety valve. That is not Nietzsche's idea, but they are related. The shapeshifters in this book are pure destruction. Right? Humans, though, have both destructive and creative impulses. And it feels like this world actually needs something that is purely creative to balance that out. But it's not actually that kind of book, right? Like, we don't need angels here, though I was kind of expecting them until we got close enough to the end that I realized they were not going to show up. And there's a a particularly great passage about these twin urges that we all have that I I just want to read to you. I mean, there's some really great writing in this book, but here's the passage. Humans are spiders spewing the filth of excess thought across the earth in the gluttonous webs of civilizations that scrabble for space to weave their own webs over those of their brethren. They have a fire in them. I'll give them that. No other animal has it, this Promethean fire. But it is ultimately a destructive flame, and eventually it will consume the planet and turn it to ashes. If I were a religious being, I'd say our purpose on this earth is solely to keep them in check. And the idea here is that in order to create, we have to destroy, right? To build a house or build a city or a library or even to produce a book, we have to destroy something in our environment. But We could flip that as well to say that much of our destructive behavior is in the service of creation, which is just not true of the shapeshifters. The character who says all of this and who really introduces the language of ancient Greek religion to to this conversation is the third member of Fenris' pack, the pack leader, in fact, whom I have not really talked about at all. Uh, His name, or I should say really what he goes by, because none of them are actually using names that they were given by their parents or or names that any human ever called them. But the name that he uses is Macedon. He was born in ancient Greece, just as Fenrir comes from medieval Scandinavia. And Jevodan, the, the youngest of these three, Jevodan uh, comes from late medieval, maybe even early modern France. And these names all have meaning in the tradition of werewolves, both in in literature and in history. Macedon is the founder of Macedonia, or Macedonia, where Alexander the Great was king before he conquered every place he could find. Uh, Macedon is the founder of Macedonia in ancient Greek literature and history. Uh, There are dozens of versions of his story, some of them having nothing to do with one another, totally different elements. But one of these stories says that he was one of the 50 sons of Lucion, who was the, the king of Arcadia. And Lucion is who really matters here, because although there are several different versions of how exactly he came to be punished by the god Zeus, the most famous of them has him being transformed into a wolf as that punishment. And so He's the first werewolf. And you've probably heard the term lycanthrope or lycanthropy. Uh, that means, you know, wolf person, right? This most famous version of the story, this is from Ovid's Metamorphoses. It's in book one. 
which I did in my undergraduate class on Latin poetry, which was a ton of fun. Ovid is fantastic. The Metamorphoses, uh, even of all of Ovid's work, is just so, so good. Highly recommend it. But in this version of the story, Lycaon butchers uh, a human. He, he cooks his flesh and then serves that cooked up human flesh to Zeus. And that is what makes Zeus super mad. And in fact, most of the stories about Lycaon have something to do with eating people and being turned into a wolf. So Macedon in The Devourers is using that name to emphasize that he is a son of Lycaon. Uh, and he does really think that that is where his werewolfness comes from. Fenrir, as I mentioned already, Fenrir is from medieval Norse literature, the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda. And Fenrir's a wolf, just a wolf, right? There's no shape-shifting here. Fenrir is a wolf who is prophesied to kill Odin during Ragnarok, which is this great battle that's going to lead to the flooding of the earth, uh, but then also the emergence of new land and a new beginning, then, for humanity. Fenrir is going to die during the battle, so he will not be part of the new beginning, though, though some gods will survive. But of all these names, Javadan is probably my favorite of them, it is the most recent, but it's probably also the deepest cut of a werewolf reference. I mean, I think most people have heard of Fenrir and Lycaon, but Jevodan is probably more obscure. Jevodan is actually the name of a region in south-central France, though it is no longer in use as it was broken up. Its, its components have been placed into different administrative units. But what matters is that in the 1760s, this region was terrorized by a beast, a beast that killed between 100 and 500 people. And it did this by, by tearing out their throats. And we have a lot of sources about this, in part because this became a real serious issue for the French monarchy, which even dispatched professional wolf hunters to deal with the problem. Uh, there was uh, prize money that was offered for wolf heads. The government also took a number of other actions here. And there's a really great book about this by Jay Smith, who's a, a scholar in the history department at the University of North Carolina. This book is called The Monsters of the, the Jevedan, colon, The Making of a Beast. Uh, Smith is a really great historian of the Enlightenment. I highly recommend this book. It is a, a ton of fun. But what matters for our purposes is that this episode entered into werewolf lore about 100 years later uh, in the 19th century in a French novel called The Beast of the Jevedan. And this book features a man who believes that he is a werewolf. And, and this came into the Anglophone tradition with a, a novel by Robert Sherard, which more or less tells the exact same story. I mean, it's basically just plagiarized. Uh, so I think that what Das is doing here with this name is quite funny, right? We know that the werewolf here is using this name because it is where he's from. And at the end of the book, he leaves India to return to France. And, and this would have been around 1660. So it's likely that he was in France 100 years later, maybe even in his hometown. And so it is likely then that he probably actually is the Beast of the Jevodan. So Das here, he's, he's taken the, the most famous of actual historical werewolves and made him an important character in his book and given him a kind of prequel story, which I just loved. I thought this was super fun. Now, I know that I have run long in this segment, so let's just move into talking about some strengths and, and, and some weaknesses here. I really enjoyed this book. I don't have any complaints. I don't have any grievances that I want to air. So let's just focus on what I think is the book's greatest strength. Das's writing, his wordsmithing. This book is just gorgeously written, and so it is a pleasure to read. I'm just going to give you an example of the writing. Uh, this is from near the end of the book. It's, it's from the letter written by Kira to her son, uh, the stranger. 
The moon shone down bright on the dead city. The wild grass tickled my palms, and the flowery arms of the tall indigo plants trailed across my face, feathery and cool. If you asked me why I cried then, I couldn't say. I felt so many things then that it seemed the only sane thing I could do. I climbed the stepped remnants of a ruin, scraping my knees bloody and not caring, opening old wounds left on my legs by the rough hide of Jevedan's second self. And I sat on top of a broken rooftop, looking over the fields and tangled gardens that had once been streets, looking beyond the city into the land that I had lived in as a human for so long. A cold wind blew into me, drying my tears, but the caked cloak of Jevedan kept me warm enough. I could see no lights anywhere for miles, and I felt like I was the only human left in the world. This is such an evocative description. It hits almost all the senses. I really feel like I am here in the destruction left by this epic fight between Fenrir and Jevodan. But I also feel like I'm with Kira in this moment, that I feel her isolation, her terror, her helplessness. It's transportive, this writing. It, it takes me to Dasa's story and it leaves me there. Or maybe a better way to think of it is that it leaves the story with me even as I go wash dishes or, or prepare a meal for my, my son, right? This story, this writing, it got into my mind this week and I really appreciate that. I loved this writing and I think you will too. Well, that brings my review to a close. I do hope that you will visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or drop by our subreddit and talk with me about the themes and motifs that I focused on, but especially on what I left out. And there are two important elements of the story that I've not given enough attention to. The first is sexuality. I've talked about this really only as it relates to the theme of love in the book, but I think that Das is trying to explore even more than that with the hermaphroditic spirits of the, the shapeshifters and also through the character of Alec. The other element also concerns Alec, and it's a real plot question. Alec is having some kind of crisis as the book ends, and it, it may be a positive crisis, it may be a kind of epiphany, but it is not clear to me if his musing about having the personas of all these characters that he's been reading about and experiencing, it is not clear to me if that is merely amusing or if he really is becoming these people in the same way that the shapeshifters are able to contain the personas of the people that they devour. And I'm not sure because he isn't sure, I, I think. And I, I do think it's an open question whether Alec is actually transforming into a shapeshifter or, or maybe you know something akin to it because of his relationship with the stranger. And I would love to hear your thoughts about that. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. So next time, uh, as I said in the previous episode, I really will be back with A Night in the Lonesome October by Roger Zelazny, which, uh, hey, that's also a werewolf book. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.